Nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. Nothing to see here. Nothing to see. Nothing to see. Nothing to see. Experimental radio produced by NASCAD University. You are listening to Nothing to See Here, a program of experimental radio produced at NASCAD University. This episode is called The Smile Without the Cat. Everybody smiles. Smiling is innate. Even blind people smile. We smile spontaneously when we are happy. It is pleasurable to smile, and by smiling, you express the pleasure of smiling. The medium of the smile is the message of the smile. This smiling is a tautology. This is why smiling is so contagious. We enjoy the act of smiling and seeing a smile makes us happy. There is a famous study of high school yearbooks where researchers tracked the lives of women and observed that those who smile the most ended up statistically leading happier lives, having happier marriages and experiencing fewer setbacks. A similar study of baseball cards discovered that there was a correlation between longevity and smiles. The players who smiled the most, it turned out, would live an average of seven years longer than those who didn't smile. The face is the exposed membrane of the body where the struggle between the inner life of the mind and the social world of the animal plays out. We read faces before we understand language. Faces communicate directly without the need for symbolic language. But expressions are also a kind of a sign system affected by our culture. Our expressions are both shaped by the 43 muscles in our face and puppeted by a complicated choreography of emotion and thought that plays itself out in the theater of our face. Feelings are hardwired into our primitive brain. Fight and flee instincts negotiate with the push and pull of desire and sexual attraction. Although we smile when we are happy, we also manufacture smiles to please others. We leverage the inherent and universal beauty of the smile to lie. The fake smile is a socially acceptable form of deception. They are forgeries passed into circulation to grease the wheels of social interaction. The smile then is like art. As Picasso said, art is the lie that tells the truth. He also said that the artist must be able to convince others of the truthfulness of his lies. The same is true for the fake smile. A smile must be sincere. 
whether you believe it or not. To achieve this magic trick of artful sincerity, the smile must be an unstable sign. It is a subtle, ingrained and nuanced gesture that we are only partially in control of. Smiling is like having one hand on the Ouija board, with the unconscious emotions also pushing and pulling the chant around. The human smile has its origins in the animal gesture of baring the teeth as a warning sign to other animals. There is probably traces of this aggressive gesture in every smile, no matter how carefree or jubilant. The smile I want to talk about is a mysterious and weird smile. It is a smile that is taking another step in evolution, away from both our animal and human natures. It is a smile that has left the body and now floats freely in our world of signs through the medium of electricity and chemicals is a free agent of positivism that seems all but ubiquitous. Today, I want to talk about the smile without the cat. You can quite easily see the difference between fake smiles and real smiles. Fake smiles usually last longer and use the zygomaticus muscles to wrinkle the corners of the mouth. Real smiles are shorter and feature a spontaneous contraction of the orbicularis oculi muscles around the eyes. A real smile is known as a Duchesne smile, named after the French neurologist Guillaume Benjamin Armand Duchesne de Boulogne, who discovered the difference between real and fake smiles in the 19th century. He applied mild electrical shocks to the faces of his patients to distinguish between the different muscle groups that influence our facial expressions. At the same time that Duchesne was experimenting on the face, photography was becoming part of people's lives. Cameras of the period required subjects to keep completely still to accommodate the slow chemistry required to fix the photographic impression on a photosensitive surface. Photographic studios had devices, much like Duchesne's lab, that held the subject's head still for the exposure. Duchesne believed that he could see the gymnastics of the soul in the human face, and he hoped that he would be able to map and codify human expressions as a way to see into the human soul. He was the first neurologist to use the newly invented medium of photography to record these electrically induced expressions which, he realized, were far superior to this task than drawing. Duchesne's electrical stimulation of the face may also have inadvertently led to experiments into the direct electrical stimulation of the brain itself. In 1869, Duchesne's friend Charles Darwin lent his copy of Duchesne's book to a colleague who mislaid it at the West Riding Lunatic Asylum, where soon after, Sir David Ferrier began experiments on electrical stimulation of the motor centers of the brain. This research eventually led to electroshock therapy. 
We know very little about Lisa Gerardini, the wife of Francesco di Giacondo, who is a wealthy Italian businessman who employed Leonardo da Vinci to paint his wife's portrait. But then again, the painting is not famous because of who it represents. In this case, we care very little about the cat. It's all about the smile. The smile of the Mona Lisa has to be the most famous smile in history. It is equally seductive, divine, canny, maybe even funny. Books have been penned about this smile. PhDs have been bestowed. Novels have been written. Songs, poems, tributes, films, tracks of scholarly papers. Reproduction after reproduction has been printed, posted, retweeted, and downloaded. An industry has grown up around the enigmatic smile of the Mona Lisa. Even in the 19th century, Paul Valery was sick to death about talking about this overexposed smile. Leonardo da Vinci's first biographer, Di Giorgio Vasari, understood that sitting for a painting is not an easy task. He wondered what devices Leonardo had used to keep the Mona Lisa smiling. Even though this smile was lightly constructed by Leonardo's deft hand over many years, the work seems to capture the feel of a real smile, a smile as fresh as the microsecond needed to carve it on the face of the sitter. This kind of smile we rarely see in paintings of this period. We, of course, see the beautific smiles of the baby Jesus, the smirking angels, or Madonna's serene face in medieval and Renaissance paintings. But here, in the Mona Lisa, is a married woman, a mortal woman, someone gleaming at us, perhaps flirting with us. When we see the Mona Lisa, we want to know what she wants. Marcel Duchamp was a French artist whose MO was to take mundane, mass-produced objects from a hardware store and transform them into works of art. He called them ready-mades. He called his work LHOOQ an assisted ready-made. In this piece, he penciled a mustache and goatee on a cheap postcard of the Mona Lisa. This was the opposite approach from his ready-made. He took a work of art and made it mundane and crude. L-H-O-O-Q, when spelled letter by letter, sounds like the French phrase, she has hot pants. This is characteristically Duchampian humor, laden with sexual innuendo. This, of course, colors our interpretation of Mona Lisa's smile. On the one hand, she is a she, and on the other hand, she has a beard, a mustache, and so she is masculine. Her hot pants perhaps hint of the false smile. Liar, liar, pants on fire. 
Perhaps it is Duchamp's or even Leonardo's anxiety about the binaries of gender that are playing out in this iconoclastic act. Duchamp had a female alter ego named Rose Selavie, and some scholars have suggested that the Mona Lisa is simply a self-portrait of Leonardo da Vinci. Later in Duchamp's career, he made a ready-made consisting of an unretouched reproduction of the Mona Lisa, which he called LHOOQ Shaved. Here, he is asking us to imagine that the imaginary cross-dressing version of the Mona Lisa has now been shaved. The reproduction points not to the original painting of the Mona Lisa, but to his famous gesture of defacing it. With this work, Duchamp has both defaced the Mona Lisa and erased his mark behind him, and in doing so, he has left the original forever changed. These works have the classic structure of a vaudevillian joke. Comedians know this formula as the joke-topper-topper pattern. The joke sets up the premise and then piles on more and more absurd deviations, known as toppers, until the penultimate absurdity returns us back to the original state of things. LHOOQ Shaved takes us back to the beginning of the sequence, but now with a newfound ambiguity adding to our understanding of the original. This is the logic of the double negative, the logic of the smile without the cat. There is another mysterious smile that beams at us from the pages of art history. The period from roughly 600 BC to 480 BC, known as the Archaic Period in Greek art, is characterized by statues and paintings sporting a flat and unnatural looking smile. These smiles stand out in the usually dour context of ancient art. They occur in many statues and paintings of this period, the smile doesn't indicate the personal happiness of the subjects. These smiles are a sign of perhaps divinity. This is the smile we mostly see in the history of art. Even the smile of the Buddha is not a sign of Buddha's happiness, but a sign of the fact that he has attained nirvana. In Western art, the smile is also used as a religious sign. The Madonna smiles at the baby Jesus. The angels smile at the humans. The smiles are a sign of divinity. Secular smiles tend towards the erotic. Franz Hall's painting, The Laughing Cavalier, painted in 1624, perhaps gets us closer to the modern-day smile. Franz Hall's characteristically unworried and confident strokes describe a genuine smile. The painting's gusto captures the fleeting passage of time, not the melancholy timelessness that infuses most paintings before it. You feel the presence of the painter and undisguised speed of the work in the brisk and decisive brushwork. 
This painting prefigures the snapshot where the immediacy of the image is able to capture the emotion of the momentary smile, a real smile. The crucial difference between painting and photography, of course, is that in a painting, an idea is created in the brain and then executed on the surface of the canvas through the application of paint. In photography, the image impresses itself on the surface directly through chemical reaction of light and silver, bypassing the conceptualizing stage of the brain. The gesture of photography involves the attendance to the apparatus of the camera to fix what is seen by the camera. As part of this act, not only is the apparatus manipulated, but also the world is arranged and organized for the act of photography to take place. The taking of photograph is more than just a mechanical process. The gesture of photography involves an assemblage that includes the camera and ourselves. As subjects of photographs, we are also part of this apparatus of photography. Photography prescribes behaviors and rituals that we participate in in the service of image making. The production of smiles is just as important as the tarnishing of silver or the coding of digital bits of information on a CCD sensor in the apparatus of photography. There is a telling portrait of the French photographer Versailles taking a photograph with a cigarette dangling from his lips. To create the haunting early morning exposures of the city of Paris that Versailles is known for, he would use cigarettes as a stopwatch. In those days, the shutter would have to remain open for as long as it took Versailles to smoke a single cigarette. But photography quickened and chemistry was developed so that photographers didn't need to make the world still to record an image. With the introduction of the Kodak Brownie camera around 1900, the snapshot was invented. This was also known as the Kodak moment. The camera sliced time thin, exposing fleeting moments stolen from the river of time. The camera became a microscope of time, as the snapshot pried open aspects of time that were previously undetectable to us. The snapshot allowed us for the first time to capture a true fleeting smile. Soon we were saying smile for the camera or even say cheese. The word cheese contorted the face muscles to produce a smile. The word cheese, therefore, became the linguistic equivalent of the head brace or Brady stand used to hold the body still in front of this sluggish 19th century photographic chemistry. The word cheese also became like Duchesne's electrodes implanted into the face. In his study of public school slang, Agnes Trumbull suggests that the origin of the phrase say cheese can be traced back to when portrait photography was introduced into the British school system in 1910. This cheesy smile is a crucial genuflection of the photographic ritual. It is the epitome of the false smile, enforces the decorum of keeping up with appearances. 
The snapshot smile is a platitude, an outward sign of appeasement operating to neutralize social conflict. The painful and awkward performance it teases out of people reinforces the superego's insistent demand for happiness, or at least the public affirmation of it. The ritual was dedicated to preserving the sign of happiness for prosperity and enforces a kind of tyranny of happiness on its subjects. The photographic snapshot has trained us to produce a kind of archaic smile that is not a personal expression or even a polite fake smile. The smiles that we put on display for the camera are meant to exist somewhere and sometime else. They are meant to exist without us. These are smiles that will carry on into the world without our cat attached. They are smiles without cats. Well, I've often seen a cat without a grin, thought Alice. But a grin without a cat is the most curious thing I ever saw in my life. Lewis Carroll grew up in Cheshire, England, a county known for its cheese. He would have known of the simile to grin like a Cheshire cat. As a child, Lewis Carroll would also have seen a Cheshire cheese fashioned in the shape of a smiling cat that is traditionally eaten from the tail end first, leaving the smile for last. Besides being the famous author of children's books, Lewis Carroll was also a respected mathematician, writing under his real name, Charles Dodgson. Alice in Wonderland is chock full of allegories and allusions to science and mathematics. In the annotated Alice, Martin Gardner interprets the Cheshire Cat as the abstract world of mathematics itself as it appears and disappears in its relevancy to everyday life. Another possible source for Carol's Cheshire Cat's smile is a mathematical pun. As a mathematician, Carol would have known about the formula of the catenary. This is the formula that describes the curve that an idealized hanging chain or cable assumes under its own weight when it is supported only at its ends. Hanging chains, of course, are perfectly lovely disembodied smiles. Much like the disembodied smile, Lewis Carroll's disappearing cat has taken on a life of its own in the arts. Chris Marker's 1977 documentary film, A Grin Without a Cat, portrayed the history of social unrest in the 1960s. The grin in this work is a metaphor for the unrealized promise of a global socialist movement. In 2002, the French artists Pierre Huy and Philippe Paniero created A Smile Without a Cat, or a celebration of Anne Lee's vanishing. Anne Lee was a magnet character that the artist had purchased from a company called K-Works, who created characters for animations and games on spec. Anne Lee had no special attributes, which meant that she would likely be killed off or become an unimportant bystander in whatever story she featured in. By owning the copyright, the artist saved this character from almost certain doom. 
The character was animated by Hui and Panaro, and other artists invited into the project, until they decided to hold a ceremony, the celebration of Anne Lee's vanishing that ended the project and symbolically released the character's rights so that she would never die. This celebration involved a fireworks show displaying Anne Lee's face on a beach in Miami Beach, Florida. It seems apt that the piece speaks of the life of a fictional character and also brings up the idea of copyright. The Copyright Act was devised as an instrument of economic control over a creator's intellectual property. Knowing that in culture, human expression has become a commodity, capitalism has created a legal framework for the ownership of cultural property. Copyright, a bit like art and a bit like the smile, is a two-edged sword, however. Consider the case of John Fogarty, he was the singer and songwriter for Credence Clearwater Revival. In 1970, when CCR was signed to Fantasy Records, Fogarty wrote a song called Run Through the Jungle, which became a major hit. After a dispute that saw Fogarty break from the record label and go solo, Fogarty wrote another song called The Old Man Down the Road. The owner of Fantasy Records thought that it sounded a lot like Run Through the Jungle. And since he owned the rights to Run Through a Jungle, he decided to sue John Fogarty for copyright infringement. He was essentially arguing that Fogarty had plagiarized himself. Here you can see that the smile has wandered far away from the cat. Fantasy lost the case but it went to the Supreme Court to determine who should pay for court costs based on whether this was even a legitimate and non-frivolous case. Luckily, Chief Justice William H. Rehnquist was a bit of a Credence fan and ruled in Fogarty's favor. Another famous disappearing cat was conjured into existence in a thought experiment by the physicist Erwin Schrödinger. Schrödinger was trying to demonstrate the strangeness of quantum mechanics by posing a thought experiment involving a cat in a box with a mechanism that would use quantum effects of radioactive decay to either poison or not poison the cat. Whether the cat was alive or dead after this unseen event was irrelevant to the observer viewing the box from the outside. The analogy pointed to how within classical quantum mechanics, the cat could be considered both alive and dead. To be or not to be Schrodinger's cat. This is and isn't the question. No animals were harmed in this thought experiment, only the animals of your mind. The undead animals of theoretical physics. Condemned to wander the physics textbooks of the world for eternity.
the famous smiley face, a yellow circle, two dots for eyes, and a smile, was created in 1963 by the American graphic designer Harvey Ball. It was designed for a campaign to counter low morale amongst employees of the state mutual life insurance company after a corporate takeover. Ball was paid $45. This distinctive smiley face design works with a kind of emotional mimicry, simplifying the face to just two black dots and a catenary smile. It doesn't express happiness. It produces a knee-jerk smile, a false smile, an empty smile. Its meaning has fluctuated throughout its short history and can be seen as an acid test of real sentiment and also our depths of cynicism towards manufactured happiness. In the 1960s, the smiley face was used by the hippies as a sincere icon of positivity in the summer of love. By the 1970s, the slogan, Have a Nice Day, was added by the Philadelphia brothers Bernard and Marie Spain, who joined this phrase to the now ubiquitous smiley face in a 1970 campaign to sell novelty items. They produced buttons, coffee mugs, t-shirts, bumper stickers, and anything else they could slap a happy face on. There is a nod towards these entrepreneurs of empty sentiment in a scene from the film Forrest Gump. Another time I was running along, somebody who had lost all his money in the t-shirt business, and he wanted to put my face on a t-shirt, but he couldn't draw that well, and he didn't have a camera. Here, use this one. Nobody likes that color anyway. Have a nice day. Well, some years later, I found out that that man did come up with an idea for a t-shirt. He made a lot of money off of it. The phrase, have a nice day, was a platitude born from the service industry. On the one hand, it is a banal and dutiful stock phrase used for impersonal professional interactions. But it can also be used with a touch of passive-aggressive sarcasm. It has inherited the dual nature of the smile. The smiley face, as an affirmation of inner peace, was also called into service in association with a cappella singer Bobby McFerrin's 1988 hit single, Don't Worry, Be Happy. McFerrin took the title and principal lyric for this song from a poster of the popular Indian mystic and sage Mehar Baba who would say, don't worry, be happy, to greet his Western followers. Riding a wave of ironic ambiguity, the smiley face was recast as the ecstatic symbol of the acid house movement of the 1990s, where it became a symbol of chemically induced happiness. 
It also served to brand Richard Linklater's 1993 retro comedy Dazed and Confused, where it captured the drugged-out bliss of a post-hippie world. Here, the smiley face wore the lopsided smirk of the happy stoner that again got taken up by Nirvana in the early 1990s. The smiley face returned to its capitalist roots when the box store Walmart tried to reclaim it. In 2001, they tried to trademark the smiley face. They were stopped short by lawsuits from a Frenchman named Franklin Lufrani, who had trademarked the smiley face in Europe and built up an empire called Smiley World. The courts eventually deemed that the iconic image had ascended to become a universal symbol that could not be trademarked by anyone. In the early days of the internet, as flame wars erupted on chat boards and email conversations, we found out how hard it is to express ourselves online. The emotional Teflon of the internet needed a shorthand way to represent the emotional content of disembodied text. And so the emoticon was born at 11.44 a.m. on September 19, 1982, when computer scientist Scott Fallman posted a combination of ASCII keys, the colon followed by the dash and then the left bracket, on Carnegie Mellon's online bulletin boards, he suggested, read it sideways. He proposed that this stylized face be included with posts that were meant to be humorous or sarcastic. A wink of the eye could be added by substituting a semicolon for one of the eyes. One of the advantages of letter forms is that they can mean anything. They are truly ambiguous, ambidextrous. This is the advantage of language constructed out of units of meaning that have multiple uses. This is why the alphabet evolved from pictures into hieroglyphs and then into letters. Emoticons asked letters to return to image writing. Emoticons made up for the inadequacy of symbolic language to communicate the full range of meaning that can be expressed. These smiles brought back the face into language. Smiling, winking, kissing. These emoticons demonstrate our anthropological need for images. Images forged from the scrap heap of letters. Like the smiley face, the emoticon is a sign carried forward from our primal attachment to the face, deployed in social circumstances of the communicative act. It's perhaps another case of the image being worth a thousand wordless meanings. Canned laughter, or laugh tracks, were introduced into live television shows at 7 p.m. on September 9, 1950. The CBS sound engineer, Charlie Douglas, had found that audiences were too quiet or too nervous when they were reacting to live TV shows. So he collected recordings of laughter and applause and created the Laugh Box, a device that he could use to sweeten the audience's reactions in the sound mix. 
The principle of the laugh box was that, like smiling, laughter is contagious. Douglas found that he had to take out more and more of the live audience's reactions from the mix until eventually the sound of the live audience was eliminated altogether, leaving only the laugh track behind. <laughs> By the 1970s, shows like M.A.S.H. and even animated kid shows were being edited to leave room to insert the canned laughter, simulating a live audience that was no longer present. Sitting alone in your room, watching these shows, you could still feel as if you were part of a crowd. As Zizek points out, the laugh box does the job of laughing for you. The TV does the enjoying for you. We tend to laugh when somebody else laughs, even if we don't know the reason for the original joke. Robert R. Provine says that laughter is decidedly a social signal, not an egocentric expression of emotion. He observed that laughter acts as a kind of punctuation in our conversations. This suggests that there is a lawful and probably neurologically based process governing the placement of laughter in speech. In 1962, on the western coast of late Victoria in a small rural village in Tanzania, three young girls in a local school were incapacitated with fits of hysterical laughter. The outbreak then spread to their schoolmates, and soon it became impossible to continue classes. After the school was closed, the laughter spread to the rest of the village, and then to nearby villages where it continued on and off for the next 18 months. This incident, now called the Tanganyika laughter epidemic, shows just how contagious and how dangerous laughter can be. Doctors attending to the outbreak said that over a thousand villagers experienced pain, fainting, respiratory problems, rashes, attacks of crying and random screaming. The epidemic was so severe that it required schools to be closed. The school where it began was eventually sued for damages. It seemed to be a case of mass hysteria, perhaps rooted in the anxiety and change in the air from the recent independence from British rule. It was a photograph taken on the shores of Lake Tanganyika that would inspire Henry Carter Bresson to comment. In 1932, I saw a photograph by Martin Munkauchi of three black children running into the sea. And I must say that it is that very photograph which for me was the spark that set fire to fireworks. It made me suddenly realize that photography could reach eternity through the moment. I couldn't believe that such a thing could be caught with a camera. I said, damn it. I took my camera and I went out into the street. 
This, of course, is the origin of Bresson's famous idea of the decisive moment in photography. In 1966, the Beach Boys frontman, Brian Wilson, was obsessively working away on a secret recording project called Smile. Collaborating with lyricist Van Dyke Parks, Wilson was pushing the limits of musical experimentation, lyrical content, and recording techniques available at the time. Rumors spread about this project, and anticipation grew and grew. But Wilson was a perfectionist, and the project never emerged. The other Beach Boys failed to become interested in the esoteric project. They were put off by the strange antics and carnival-like atmosphere that Wilson had created in the studio. Then the Beatles released Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. When Wilson heard it for the first time, he was devastated. He felt that the Beatles had beat him to the punch. He began a decline into depression and madness that lasted decades. And the unfinished Smile Project became the most famous unreleased record in history. It was only in 2004 that Wilson finally was well enough to re-record the music from Smile and to finally perform it live. attempted to salvage some of Brian Wilson's songs from the abandoned Smile project and included them on an album called Smiley Smile. After all the hype in the press about Brian Wilson's impending masterpiece, this cobbled together album was greeted with muted enthusiasm. The Smile project had become a rock and roll legend. Smiley Smile was perceived as a false smile the embarrassed smile used to cover up the failure of the band to release Brian Wilson's masterwork. There was, however, at least one redeeming aspect to the Smiley Smile project. Beach boy Carl Wilson reported that in Fort Worth, Texas, there was a drug clinic which takes people off the street and helps them get over bad LSD trips. They don't use any traditional medical treatment whatsoever all they do is play the patient our Smiley Smile album, and apparently this acts as a smoothing remedy which relaxes them and helps them recover completely from their trip. The Scottish author Samuel Smiles is the acknowledged inventor of self-help. He published his influential book entitled Self-Help with illustrations of character and conduct in 1859, and vastly outsold both Charles Darwin's Origin of the Species and John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, that were both published in the same year. Smile's work has been called the Bible of mid-Victorian liberalism. It begins a trajectory towards ideals of perseverance and self-reliance 
that continue on into the modern self-help movement. He is also known for the origin of the phrase, a place for everything, and everything in its place. The photograph is not just about the decisive moment, it is also about being in the right place. A picture spot is also part of the photographic apparatus. It instructs the tourist photographer on the proper way to take an aesthetically pleasing photograph of an important place. Much like the ritual of the snapshot smile, the photo spot formalizes the ritual of taking a photograph in a known tourist destination. The photograph is a memento of your presence in a place. Here, the cat and the smile have parted company once again. At Disneyland's Epcot Center, an architectural simulation of iconic bits of famous cities has been created and arranged conveniently so that one can tour the world. Each of these sites has been carefully constructed to offer us a signposted vista, a picture spot that will create a photograph that will look like you are in a famous location. For instance, the Eiffel Tower has been shrunk down but from the view of the photograph, it will look real. How many people will review these snapshots and later in life believe that they have actually traveled to this place? One photographer who was always in the right place at the right time was the Austrian-born Arthur Fielig. He's better known as Ouija, a name derived from the Ouija board. He got this nickname because of his uncanny ability to show up at a crime scene even before the police did. He's called the father of tabloid journalism. His gritty black and white photographs of crime scenes, grotesque portraits of high society were influential on film noir and celebrity photography. By emphasizing the negative aspects of life, Ouija made us believe in the reality of his photographs. At the time, celebrities had a great deal of control over how they showed themselves to the world. Ouija showed them in a different light by capturing them in their embarrassing moments. And in doing so, he rehumanized them. The logic of these photographs involves a double negative, and I'm not just referring to the photograph itself, which, if you think about it, is a negative of a photographic negative making a positive image. With the paparazzi who owe a debt to Ouija, you have the positivism of celebrity culture turned into scandal and negative press that is sold back to the public as entertainment, the Schadenfreuden industry. Schadenfreude is, of course, the German word for which there is no English equivalent that means pleasure derived from the misfortunes of others. Whenever I hear the word Schadenfreude, 
I think of Sigmund Freud. He is very interested in the double negative. The idea of how you can negate negation is basically his idea of the unconscious. Freud talks about the return of the repressed. He says that objects that enter the unconscious will reappear. That is, they will negate their repression, but only in disguise through mechanisms like disavowal, denial, slips of the tongue, dreams, and so on. The smile is often a kind of double negative. A smile is often a fake smile produced for a certain social situation, and yet it can pass for real sentiment, while also masking aggressive feelings, just as the act of smiling creates an innate happiness or good feeling, so that the fake emotions become real. Two wrongs don't make a right, and a double negative often doesn't make a positive. When Mick Jagger sings, I can't get no satisfaction, it is understood that he is not satisfied and not that he is not not satisfied. A double negative is often just a manner of speaking, not a formal construction of logic. It is in this way that double negatives are often used as backhanded compliments, such as Mr. Smith was not incompetent, which implies that Mr. Smith is not competent without saying it directly. Our culture has created these dialectical systems of meaning where the dialectic symmetry is so exquisitely balanced that absolute reversibility is possible. The Oxford philosopher of language, J.L. Austin, pointed out that there are many languages where a double negative makes a positive, but he couldn't think of any examples where a double positive makes a negative. He made this point at a lecture at Columbia University about linguistics when, from the back of the audience, came a sarcastic, yeah, yeah, from the Columbia philosopher and wit, Sidney Morgenbesser. Austin's point is that we do tend towards a positive spin in language. The language of the smile is like this. Too much smiling is usually not a terrible thing. The Ouija board is an example of a double positive. The name Ouija is derived from the French and German words for yes. We and ya. Yeah. The Ouija board was originally designed by the game company Hasbro in 1890 in Baltimore. It was used as a harmless parlor game. The American spiritualist Pearl Curran began to use it as an occult divining tool around the time of the Second World War, and since then it has had a weird aura of secular mysticism about it. The Ouija board was seen as a demonic threat by certain Christian groups.
another example of a double positive. What can be more positive than a rock group named Yes? In 2008, John Anderson, the lead vocalist of Yes, left the group in the middle of a tour because of illness that affected his voice. Needing to replace Anderson quickly, the band looked to YouTube, specifically the videos of Yes tribute bands. And this is where they found Benoit David, the lead vocalist of a Quebec-based Yes tribute band called Close to the Edge. David joined the tour, and when John Anderson retired due to illness, he officially joined Yes and became their lead singer. He did this while also continuing to hold down a gig in the tribute band, a tribute to the band that he was now a member of. Perhaps the ultimate smile without a cat is encapsulated in Timothy Leary's pre-transhumanist agenda for space colonization that he called Smile. S-M-I-2-L-E. This is short for S-M, space migration, I-2, intelligence increase, L-E, life extension. If Timothy Leary was a character from Alice in Wonderland, you would probably imagine him as the hookah-smoking caterpillar. He was known as an advocate for the therapeutic use of drugs like LSD. He laid out his transhumanist vision in his book called Exopsychology, a manual on the use of the nervous system according to the instructions of the manufacturers. His plan, called SMILE, imagined 5,000 virile and intelligent individuals being sent away in a luxurious space vessel called Starseed One. And so here is a vision of the SMILE leaving the cat mothership once and for all. Perhaps, though, the SMILE is already there in space. A moon smiling down on us.
have been listening to Nothing to See Here, experimental radio from NASCAD University. This episode was The Smile Without the Cat, a monologue by David Clark. This work was first performed at the Obey Convention in Halifax, Nova Scotia in the summer of 2016. The script, sound design, and mixing were by David Clark. For more episodes of Nothing to See Here, please search for Nothing to See Here Radio on soundcloud.com. Please also see our Facebook page, Nothing to See Here Radio, and tune in next week for another episode of Nothing to See Here.